Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. I'm here today with Chris, Olivia, Hulu, and Jim. to talk about the Dhamma, answer questions about the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma. Something I had wanted to talk about on Wednesday, yeah, we had technical difficulties unable to broadcast yeah, but then it came up this morning again as well in our study group to mentioned about freedom mokha moksha in sanskrit it seems in the in around the buddha's time the word mokha or moksha was commonly used to describe the goal of the spiritual life Vimutti. They said Vimutti in Paul in in the Buddha's teaching was often used. Vimutti. Vimukti. Freedom plays, of course, a large part in Buddhism. It's an interesting word. It's an interesting idea, concept. It's an important, important topic. And I think it's important to understand the topic properly. We can see it's easy to misunderstand or, or misuse the word from a Buddhist perspective and use it in a way that is not conducive to the goal or not conducive to true freedom, not conducive to peace, happiness. We see in the world people use this word in all sorts of ways. We have freedom of speech. We have concepts of personal freedom, freedom of association, freedom of the press. We have terms like freedom fighter, fighting for freedom, land of the free, Our, our neighbors to the south are, calling, are, are keen to use this term. Quite often it's used in the sense of freedom to. When we say freedom of, we really mean freedom to. Freedom to do this, to do that. Freedom to do whatever the heck we want. we step on other people's freedoms, we inhibit their freedom to do, we encroach on their freedom to do whatever they want. On the face, it sounds like a bad thing from a Buddhist perspective. Freedom to do whatever you want seems to be not the sort of freedom the Buddha was talking about, but I think there's an aspect of this that is actually very important, an important part of the Buddhist teaching. Obviously, doing whatever you want is not going to actually lead to true peace and happiness. And 
much of what we claim or, or recognize conventionally as being freedom. It's not actually freedom at all. Freedom to pursue whatever we desire. Well, we know how free is, is our pursuit of things we desire. The Buddha called it slavery. We are slaves unto our desire. Without wisdom, we follow our desires not out of freedom, but out of slavery. We are slaves not only to greed, we're slaves to our anger, slaves to arrogance, slaves to views, beliefs, Freedom of religion is probably the funniest one because, well, quite often our religion is a slavery. We're enslaved to our views and beliefs, shackled to them, unable to think for ourselves, unable to investigate the truth for ourselves because of what we're told by our religion, by our parents, by our culture. If you travel the world, you see how often we become slaves to our culture. Visit other countries and you don't like the way they do things, they're doing everything wrong until you realize you're just, you're just a slave to your limited understanding of right and wrong, truth and falsehood. When you go to Thailand, when you live in Thailand, uh, for long enough, you'll eventually encounter this. Uh, I encountered anyway the, this right, this 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 fault, this error that uh, the rest of the world has, or the or, or the world I come from anyway. We cut vegetables and fruits. Um, I can't remember which now because I haven't cut anything in a long time. What do we do? We cut away. We, we cut with a knife away. Anyway, it sounds like such a trivial thing, but one group of people cuts with a knife away from the body. And another group cuts with a knife towards the body. I think we cut towards the body, actually. In Thailand, they would never do that. And they will yell, they will scold you for it. It's wrong. It's, not, it's tri very trivial, but get very caught up in right and wrong. Our ideas of what is right and wrong. Anyway, we become slaves to so many things, slaves to culture, slaves to belief, slaves to desire, slaves to aversion. One wonders whether there is actually any free will whatsoever, right? It's a question that is often asked in Buddhism. We're often asked by Buddhists. It's not really something the Buddha went into. I don't think it's the right way to approach the issue. We're not really that interested in a view, any anything you might come up with on the topic, because it would just be a, a, a view. Free will is an interesting part of aspect of freedom. The truth that Buddhism, com Buddhism comes up with is is not it's not a theory about reality. If you said something like there is free will or it's all deterministic, it implies a framework of self or a framework of of being 
that is outside of the outside of reality really reality is this experience this first person personal experience And so the idea of free will doesn't really come up. It only comes up in relation to this this idea of actions, of how we do things based on our desires, based on our aversions, and how clearly that's not freedom. In fact, we find that the more we exercise this freedom, the more enslaved we become the more influential our desires become until we're unable to act any other way. We trap ourselves in our freedom, trap ourselves in our exercising of our freedom. It's not really any freedom at all. But there is one way that this can be understood. This idea of freedom too should be understood as very important in Buddhism. And it's in relation to this very idea of religious view and religious belief or cultural view and cultural belief. It's very important to understand that we do indeed have the freedom to do whatever we want. There is no God Deter determining what is right and wrong. There is, in fact, in some sense, no such thing as right or wrong. No such thing as good or evil. We use those words rightly, but we use them conventionally. We use them practically. In an ultimate sense, it would be proper to say There is no right or wrong, that the universe is indifferent to our acts. There is no judgment. When we talk about karma, we're not talking about some divine judgment. We're talking about cause and effect. Certain things, no matter whether we wish for them to lead us to happiness or suffering, they have the inevitable result of leading us to happiness or suffering. But we are free, completely free, without any any sense of... of right or wrong, to do whatever we want. We can, as they say in the text, we can go run up and down one side, run up one side of the river Ganga, killing all the people on one side, cross over the river, kill all the people on the other side. And you can say we have done nothing right or wrong. All you can say is that there will be a result, there will be consequences, there will be a result. All of those evil, unwholesome mind states, they're only called evil and wholesome because we consider the results, the consequences, to be horrific. I think quite often we get the, we get the expectation that if I can do it, it means it's okay to do. We have the sense that there will be something stopping us. Sometimes it manifests in the sense of God, God or some divine inspiration telling us to do something. But quite often it's just a sense that as long as no one's not telling me not to do it, it's okay to do. 
it feels right to me. If I do it and there are no immediate repercussions, we become intoxicated by freedom. And our, our sense of what is right and wrong is often so skewed that what fits inside of our framework of right and wrong is often quite skewed and leads us to do things that are can be quite horrific and have quite horrific consequences. Because, of course, the, the framework of reality admits no error. Just because it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you believe is right or wrong. We indeed have freedom to do whatever we want, but we have no way to escape the truth of reality. Things that cause such terrible suffering. That's inconsistent. Your acts don't have the desired result. We're not free from that framework. We're free to hurt ourselves. We're free to torture, to, to doom ourselves to, to, to suffering and, and corruption, to, to loss. We're free to become as evil or as good as we wish. There's no one pushing or pulling us. That's very important from a Buddhist perspective, I think, because, because of the relief it gives us from any kind of false view of what's right and wrong. You don't need a view to tell you what's right or wrong. You can't depend or rely even on the Buddha's teaching. You can only rely on it as a guide, as an artificial guide. You know, you talk about the five precepts, and you hear about the five precepts, and so you follow them. But that's not true ethics. That's not the ultimate ethics. Ultimate true ethics is the abstention in the mind. True ethics comes from understanding. When you understand for yourself the, the inconsistency of evil, how oh, no, this act doesn't lead to happiness, manipulating others, hurting others. It just has no positive effect. It leads to suffering, it leads to stress, it leads to sorrow, lamentation, despair. It leads to mental corruption, it doesn't lead to mental strength. We are free. Even if you are the most evil person in the, in the world, you are not doomed. You are never doomed. You're only destined to face the consequences of your actions. The, the effect of the cause. No more, no less. If you do something evil, don't feel don't feel bad or upset about it. Cultivate understanding to understand that there will be a result to that cause. If I have done something bad in my life, don't feel like a bad or evil person. Understand that there will be an, an effect to that cause. It's the best way. Understand things in terms of this freedom. Even if people judge you or blame you for your evil deeds, they are not God. They are not in charge. They can be blamed for blameless things even. But even if we're blamed for blamable things, then we understand this is a part of the effect of the cause. No more, no less doesn't mean we are doomed or doesn't mean we are evil. There's nothing intrinsic about evil. You don't, a person doesn't become evil. The evil is in the habit. It's in the act. 
And so it's quite simply a matter of changing our habits and changing our actions, changing our behavior, changing our speech, our thoughts, no more, no less. Buddhism is in fact much more focused, of course, on the other sort of freedom, freedom from. We talk about the goal of suffering as being freedom from suffering. And the goal of Buddhism is being freedom from suffering. But there's a problem with this as well. Absolutely, freedom from is much more in line with uh, orthodox understanding of the Buddha's teaching. There's no question that it is our main focus to free ourselves from. We, in fact, cage ourselves very much in ethical behavior, in meditative, mindful behavior. It's very much a cage in some sense. We limit our activities. We purposefully prevent ourselves from engaging in activities that might excite our addictions. We absolutely prevent ourselves from all sorts of activities related to harm towards others, harm towards ourselves. We severely restrict our freedom to we determine that we are, we, we shall not do these things, say these things, think these things. And we strive to our utmost to cage ourselves in that way. In the hope that we can cultivate, not in the hope, with the intent that we, through our devotion, through our dedication to a straight path, a pure path that we will become free from suffering, free from defilement. Because what need have you of freedom to when you have no desire, when you have no wishes, no hopes, no wanting, when you, there's nothing lacking, what need have you to do anything besides the ordinary, un, unintentional, un, unambitious activities that go in accordance with the nature of reality acts like eating and drinking and walking and talking, standing, sitting, lying, simple acts that require no special free will. What need have you of anything beyond those? Simply being. The freedom too becomes pretty meaningless in the end. except in the sense of being free, free from all the views that would restrict your activity, that would dictate what you should and shouldn't do. An enlightened one is free in their activities, in their actions. They're free to come and go as they please because they have no nothing weighing them down, no desires dictating their activities. They may seem very much uh, very much imprisoned from an outside perspective, from those people who wish to engage in pleasant activities, the enlightened one might seem restricted. But they're absolutely not. It's quite the opposite. They have no master, no desires to boss them around, no views to boss them around, or culture or religion. No, they have no boss. They're their own boss. And they're a boss because they, they have pure wisdom. 
They know right from wrong, good from bad. They know the right path. They're like a person in a deep forest who knows the way out of the forest, who knows the layout of the forest, the traps, the swamps, the quicksand. They are not subject to the traps. More importantly though, the enlightened one, the enlightened one is free from, free from suffering. from defilement so that you could say they have freedom on both sides but the one thing to say about freedom from as we understand it to be the goal of our practice the result of our practice that through insight through understanding we free ourselves from the slavery to desire aversion views conceits and so on The, the danger is that this is often viewed as the practice in the sense of actively trying to escape from suffering, escape from our defilements. This is the sort of thing that goes on when people take uh, medication for mental illness. When you rely on the medication, it's as an escape from depression, anxiety, which is really, in a Buddhist, in Buddhist parlance, it's the escape from defilement, which is not the way out of suffering. The quality of mindfulness is to face reality. Visaya bhimukha And we face our experiences, we face our defilements. And we acknowledge them. We observe them, we examine them, we understand them. And we observe our suffering. And often our practice in ordinary life is to escape suffering. We wouldn't engage so much in pursuit of pleasure if we didn't suffer so much. And so our practice is about facing that so-called suffering and through understanding to free ourselves from the, not the experience itself, but the reaction to it, the perception of it as unpleasant, the reaction of aversion and dislike that causes us to suffer. It's not actually our pain. It's not actually our thoughts. It's not actually a, the seeing things we see or hear or smell or taste or feel. None of these things are what actually causes us suffering. They're not the problem. True freedom from suffering comes from Freedom from delusion, freedom from ignorance. So if you want to talk about the practice in terms of freedom, the best way to understand it is as freedom from ignorance. There are many practices you can do, of course, that free you from pain and suffering or free you from defilement even. We're going over a sutta that talks about this right now. It talks about how when you enter into very peaceful states of meditation, you, you're hidden from evil. Evil can't find you because your mind is so pure. But that purity is only temporary. 
And those meditations are not the ultimate end of freedom from suffering. Until you come to an understanding a deep, a solid, a profound realization of the truth. You can never be free from suffering until that time. So when we talk about freedom from, we have to, we have to qualify it as being as a result of strength, patience, and ultimately of wisdom and understanding. It's not about running away. Freedom doesn't come from running away. Our prison is much more fundamental than, than that. You can't just run away from suffering. You can't just run away from defilement. There's no drug that will cure ignorance. So, again, I've spent some time talking about the Dhamma. I think it's an important topic. So, that's the Dhamma for today. I will now take questions. I'm ready if the team is ready to start asking and posting. Ready, Bhante. So let's begin. Sometimes pain is so overwhelming that I find it very distracting to sit with and accept it. Should I sit every time I feel pain? How can I accept pain and not resist it? So there's not just the pain. If there were just the pain, then it would probably not be uh, distracting. But there's most likely a disliking of it. And there's probably other other things involved. You have to be vigilant and, and observant to see what else there is. Note the disliking and so on. When you note the pain, what else happens? What is it that makes it hard In the beginning, it's just overwhelming. You can so, in 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 the beginning, certainly you can move, switch your position, that sort of thing. Just try and be mindful. Eventually, you're going to be able to sit with the pain and note it, and note the disliking of it, or worry, or whatever might come in the mind. Don't, also, don't be discouraged that the mind stays with the pain. It's fine. Pain is a valid object of meditation. I have some very negative thoughts all the time. How do you stop this way of thinking? You can't. That's really the problem. Is that you're a slave unto it. We become, we become slaves to our thought patterns. You have to understand the, the way the mind works is related to habits and patterns. There, there, become the, there come these ingrained cycles in the mind. The more we incline towards something or the more we engage in some thought pattern, some pattern of activity, the more our mind inclines in that direction. And so you can't stop a habit. Habits are much more sin in, uh, insidious, no, much more pernicious, much more um, much more deeply ingrained than that. So mindfulness works by observing, not by stopping. First of all, a thought cannot be negative. It's, it's more complex than that. There's the thought and then there's the reaction to it or the emotion associated with it. 
even thoughts whose content appears to be unwholesome. The thought itself is not unwholesome. The unwholesomeness is whatever it is that causes that thought to come again and again, or originally caused that thought to come. Thoughts are just content. If you, if I say, um, if I say to you, I wish for someone to die, me saying it doesn't mean I actually wish it. You see, that's the point. And our mind behaves in such a way. Our mind comes up with thoughts often based on past habits, but the thought is not the desire. It's not the intention. That's very important, important to understand because the mind might come up with any thought. Sometimes our thoughts are quite chaotic. But even the emotions, even the negative unwholesome emotions, we can't just stop. We have to understand them. Or our understanding of the nature of the situation prevents them. Eventually, you don't even have to understand them because they won't come up. Our level of understanding and clarity of mind means that they don't even arise. There can't arise desire, aversion, conceit, arrogance, wrong view. There can none of these can arise as a result or or, or in in the sequence following mindfulness, because mindfulness is a clarity. It's, there's a purity that comes from mindfulness. Should I label the lasting sensations like subtle vibrations or heartbeats, or is it enough just to be aware of them? You should label them. It's not, we don't consider it to be, to be very helpful to just be aware of things. It can, of course, have a positive result, but in the long term, it generally isn't considered strong enough. To free you from self, to to free you from the ignorance or conceit or craving. So enough. It depends what you mean by enough, but but enough to free you from suffering. It probably it probably won't be as useful. How should we deal with clinging to expectations about a meditation session? Also, what precautions should be taken to also avoid clinging to the teachings and obsessing about them? Well, there's no special practice that needs to be done. It's just the same practice as with anything else. What I would say about that is don't create some kind of idea like clinging to the teachings like like they're like they're, it being an issue. Don't create a, a a problem in your mind that I have this problem. Someone might, in, in relation to this, might uh, might create the view in their mind that this is a bad thing, and that and so as a result they try to actively pursue a non-clinging to the teachings. For example, like a person might say, "I'm not going to." stay strictly, adhere strictly to the teachings because that would be clinging to them, you know, for example. 
that that's the creation of a sort of an idea or a, a boogeyman, a, a a monster. That that is not necessarily helpful. We try and deal with experiences as they come up, without any real reference to some kind of idea of what they might be. So so what I mean is, if there is an expectation, that moment of expectation, whatever it is for, it's, it, it doesn't matter whether it's for results in the practice, expectations in, in your worldly life, that sort of thing, it's still expecting, and you would just say expecting, or if you're hoping or wishing or that sort of thing. So as a result, you don't have to take any precautions. We deal with things as they come. We learn about things as they arise. That's our practice. So whatever comes, whatever kind of expectation, just try and deal with it as it comes. I noticed that being tempted from lust and loneliness is a very immense hindrance for me from free thoughts. How do you deal with this through meditation? Well, you cultivate thoughts about it. You cultivate the freedom in, in, in relation to the thought itself. See, freedom doesn't come by avoiding things. That's not, as I said, that's that's not where freedom, freedom doesn't come from running away from the problems. So learning about lust and loneliness, learning about the things that, the triggers, those thoughts that are triggering lust, triggering loneliness, those uh, sense impressions that trigger it. studying them, observing them. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but that would be the sort of practical answer. Try to practice those things. I've often heard the term beginner's mind used. Would this be something to incorporate in my meditation practice? I think so. We don't use it, but I like the idea of the beginner's mind in the sense that a meditator should always begin from the very basic uh, foundational practice. It's easy to lose sight of that in your journey. And as your practice becomes easier at times, or, or in general, let's say, becomes easier. It's easy to become negligent um, because a part of what makes practice easier is simply the consistency of experience. So, for example, you might be practicing in the meditation center and the practice gets easier as you as you become more proficient. But then, say, when you leave the center, and the situation changes, it, it suddenly becomes hard again and you're caught off guard because you've lost that beginner's mind. You've, you've, you've become complacent. Another way it happens is, is in the meditation course when something new comes up or when some uh, accident occurs, some kind of Maybe there's a sickness or, or an injury or a, um, a disruption of some sort that changes what it, it changes the, the, the condition and you're not able to deal with it because you've become complacent, because you've gotten proficient at dealing with a stable situation so you don't you aren't required to, to maintain such vigilance. So the beginner's mind keeps you vigilant. It reminds you to always, always, always stay with the practice. We should think of ourselves as beginners all the time.
How do you find the greater pleasure in meditation that will give you reason not to go back to the sense pleasure realm? That's a good good question. Sometimes you that might not be a feature of your practice. For some people, practice can be quite unpleasant. And the only thing keeping them going is the wisdom and the understanding that sense pleasure is not actually leading to more happiness, to greater happiness. I mean, for many people, that's the whole point of the practice. It's a withdrawal from the craving. And so it can be quite unpleasant. But I don't think that's a real issue in the long term. Practice does lead to happiness, even for those who are caught up in the slavery of desire. A bigger issue is maintaining the, the wisdom and the clarity of mind to see that. Uh, uh, for the most part, a an addict, say a drug addict, is fairly aware of the suboptimal state that they're in. I don't think it's that common for a drug addict. I read a book about this once. Drug addicts tend, to, I think the the... the, the explanation was drug addicts tend to know that what they're doing is not leading them to happiness. They just don't have the clarity of mind. They don't have the presence of mind, the fortitude, the strength of mind to stop themselves. That's what true slavery is. So the issue is not really about finding something more pleasant the issue is to have the clarity of mind to see that what, what you're doing is not actually pleasant. The pleasure that comes from sense desires is, is not actually happiness. So the presence of mind to, to appreciate and to, to act in accordance to that to keep the mind from becoming enslaved to it. How useful is feeling shame? When you lie, you should feel shame so you know that it is not the right thing to do, right? What about shame in general? Should we notice it as shame during meditation. I think you have to be careful with words like shame because the appearance of shame is a good thing. However, the uh, angry mind state, the hateful mind state that comes as a result of shame is not wholesome. So our, our, how we ordinarily think of shame is as a very negative, un, un, unhappy state. Uh, an averse state, state of self-hatred often, shame. But the appearance of shame, the, the likeness of it, the form of it, comes from, you know, really is just a, a, a profound understanding of the wrongness, the inconsistency of it the hypocrisy even of it, the uselessness of it. 
And so that's quite useful. It's quite it's quite an important part of the practice to have what appears to be shame or what we might call shame. But you have to have to have to free it or or dissociate it from the aversion. If you dislike something, if you're sad about something you've done or feel guilty about something you've done, right? What we call feeling guilty is really this aversion. You have to be very mindful of that as well. It's not really useful. And as I said before, the real result, the real practice, proper response to unwholesomeness is to understand it. To understand it as being unwholesome. You recoil not from aversion, but from understanding. So the mind has simply no inclination towards activities that are unwholesome because of the wisdom. Does our ability to be mindful fortify the mind the more we practice, or is it similar to building muscle, wherein one can lose their mindfulness quickly without consistent practice? It does fortify the mind. It is similar to building a muscle. I'm not quite sure the the idea here. When you build a muscle, you don't lose your muscle quickly. You you will lose it if you don't practice it, but not quickly. Maybe if you practice quite a bit, it becomes habitual, like a muscle. It lasts for some time. No, muscle doesn't doesn't quickly go away just when you stop exercising. It lasts. Mindfulness is similar, but yes, eventually it will go away. At what point in the meditation practice can the study of text become useful? I'm concerned about encountering something that will cause doubt to arise. Try and keep it proportionate to your practice. Wouldn't say it's necessary to ask at what point or to find a point where at where you should where at you should start studying. But study should be in proportion to your practice. I'm not sure what the proper proportion. I want to say something like two to one or something, but I'm not sure how you'd measure that. I think let your practice decide what is proportionate. Don't. Um, completely remove yourself from the theory and the study. Just make sure that it's not disproportionate to your practice. If you stay in that, with that, you shouldn't run into trouble. Also, I guess I would say make sure you're studying things that are related to your practice. So there are many different teachers teaching many different things and if your practice is not related to the teaching, it can be quite disturbing and cause for great doubt when you're not sure whether to follow the teaching or the practice. How could I start a habit to make me meditate more often? So habits don't start as habits, right? And the answer here is quite simple. You you, you just start practicing. It's an inter- it's a curious question because there's nothing there's no special magic that's going to start a habit. Just practice starts a habit. So maybe the answer would be to practice a little more or a little more consistently. It's not easy. There's no, this is a part of freedom. There is no, there is no safety net. There is no God. There is no divine benevolence that's going to save you. And that sometimes, for people who grew up in a theistic culture, that's sometimes hard to let go of, hard to understand that there is no safety net. 
it's not happily ever after. Your story might not end in a happy ending. That's, that's That should be scary for all of us. On the flip side, of course, our story never ends. So we never run out of chances. And that's also something foreign to most theistic cultures. In, theist, in theism, there's, all, there's usually the idea of salvation or doom. Salvation or damnation. But that's not a thing in Buddhism. Even if you do end up in hell, it's only a temporary state based on causes, conditions. How does one deal with parents that are manipulative? I do sometimes have empathy for them, even though they hurt me, but I feel like the more they are involved in my life, the more suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things. Um... Absolutely, you should try to limit your interaction with problematic individuals. You shouldn't associate with people for just for the reason of them being our family or friends or, or whatever, if associating with them causes more suffering. But that's more in relation to the evil that comes that, that that they cultivate and the evil that we cultivate when we're around them it's not actually because of how how unpleasant it is like say someone had that's for a silly example say someone had very strong body odor we would say oh i should not associate with that person because there's a lot of suffering being being near them but that's not a valid reason because of course body odor doesn't make you suffer if someone is very sick or or disabled and we find it so stressful to have to take care of them that's not a valid reason because it's not the taking care of them that causes them suffering so what i mean to say is quite often it, it, it's just a change of our own attitude and really ultimately that's the answer you don't need to remove yourself the only reason for saying it's proper to remove yourself from situations that lead to defilement is, is as a practical and um, temporary measure due to our own weakness, our own state of being a learner. And until we've come to greater understanding we should remove ourselves from the situation so i think even for an enlightened being there's a case for for staying at a distance to people who encourage you to engage in or or, or people whose engagement with you is unwholesome in the sense that they might try to hurt you i mean it's not good for them to be able to do that. So keeping yourself at arm's length can be a good thing. But simply because it causes you suffering is, is ultimately not a great reason. It's just the right thing to do is ultimately the, the, the reason. But a big part of our practice is going to be coming to terms with our reactions to things and understanding that it's those reactions and that, that, that hurt us and not other people, that others can't hurt you. So I would say there's a two parts to, your, to the answer here is that, yes, you should keep a distance, but you should also be very careful that you're not just doing it because of your own suffering, and that ultimately that's not a good enough reason. So, because again, suffering is not something you can run away from something that you free yourself of through uh, through wisdom through understanding i can't maintain my concentration for more than five minutes while meditating what's the way to maintain concentration while meditating 
So concentration in, in this practice is momentary. You don't have to worry about five minutes, just try to worry about one moment. That moment is now. Meditation can be likened to chopping down a big tree. When you're chopping down a tree, it's it's tempting to think maybe this next chop's going to ch cut down the tree and so you hit it really hard and you can actually hurt yourself that way. The right way is to just be patient, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and the tree will fall eventually. Someone who cuts down trees will, will know that. But they don't rush. They don't try and hit extra hard when they think the tree's going to fall. They just chip away, chip away. So how that relates to your question, what I mean is don't worry so much about the times when you're not mindful, when you're distracted. Focus on the times when you catch yourself and use those moments to cultivate mindfulness when you are aware. Right now, right now you're sitting here listening to me. When you're aware of that, when you have the presence of mind to be present with that, Try and apply mindfulness right then and there. Don't be so focused on the past or the future. You'll never get anywhere that way. You'll never be in the present. When you say, I wasn't focused, or I was only focused this long, or I got distracted there, you're in the past. You're not focused on what's happening now. And if you keep doing that, you'll never be present. Never be mindful. How does one overcome the fear of losing someone that you love very much? Well, mindfulness is a very good solution. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. If you're interested, that might be a great thing. Or, and if you're really interested, you could take our at-home meditation course. So that's a good way to learn how to meditate. It's all free. We don't charge for anything, so don't be afraid there. What practice can I begin today so that gradually I may start moving towards the ultimate goal of this human life? Same to you. Same as the last one. Read our booklet. We claim something here. We make a fairly bold claim that this practice will do all those things that you just said. Okay, Bhante, the questions have come to an end and we've okay. reached past the hour. Okay, thank you. And thank you for keeping time. I believe there's a... Do you have an announcement or Olivia has an announcement? This is um, something fairly new, if, if it's actually going to happen. And I want to sort of preface it by saying that we don't have any ulterior motives or this isn't a norm for us. And we certainly aren't dedicated to fundraising. But we have decided to fundraise and hopefully... The reasons why we fundraise can, or if you want me, should I explain why we fundraise? I've invited a volunteer, Olivia, into the channel. She can explain why we're doing this. Sure. Sochi, everyone. So um, I, I didn't quite catch what has already been said, so I'll start from the top. Today, Surumangalo International is launching its fundraiser for establishing a long-lasting meditation center. It's important for us to have this um, sustainable place to have um, a center so that it can be a physical um, refuge for meditators and so that the teaching can be more accessible to more people as well. We need help because all of our services, um, we can't even call them services, but everything that we do is, is done out of complete generosity. We don't make any money for anything that we do. We, um, we run basically on generosity. So that is why we will be doing this fundraiser. 
And if you're interested in supporting the development of the center, please consider checking out our GoFundMe page, which I'll post a link in the chat very shortly. And there's an informative video as well, and I'll post a link to that as well. Anything else? Thank you, Olivia. Thank you. Thank you, Bonte. We won't make a habit of doing this, everyone. So please don't, please don't think that we're doing this all just so that you'll, we can catch you at the end and encourage you to give us money or something. I don't use money. I don't get involved with the money side of things, and, but it really is necessary. I mean, right now we have these issues as well. In order for me to even do what I do now, someone, some people are renting me a house so it's the same idea it's not like there's anything new here it's just this isn't really sustainable there's no long term with renting a, an overpriced house it, there, there's it's, it's a much more reasonable i think solution to work towards something that eventually does create what they call equity i mean these are all worldly terms but important for any organization and we do have an organization organizations have certain requirements and we need a base of operations just to have these talks just to have all of what we do and of course from my perspective and i think all of us as olivia said to have courses these sessions on youtube are not the core of what we do the core of what we do is at-home courses, in-house courses, when we can get back to the state of being able to host meditators here, to actually be able to lead people through this. We really need a, 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 a place to do that and a long-term location would be really, I think the, the best solution. We've sort of agreed on that. So thank you everyone for working towards that goal. But no expectations. We take, we'll, we'll just take it as it comes. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for your interest and your practice. I wish you all a good day. May we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Did you have something else to say, Chris? I only wish to thank you for letting us use this space to promote that uh, fundraising effort. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.